The Adirondacks in northern New York State can be a pretty tough place to live, and an even tougher place to farm. Dense forests, harsh winters, short growing seasons, there's a lot of obstacles. Now, imagine how it was over 150 years ago. The country is in knots over slavery, and folks in the North are fighting over what rights free African Americans should have. Like in New York State, for example, African Americans only had the right to vote if they owned property. Enter abolitionist Garrett Smith whose father was one of the state's richest landowners. As part of his inheritance, Garrett Smith owned over 120,000 acres of undeveloped land in the Adirondacks. He decided he'd divide it into plots and grant them to a few thousand free African Americans. And boom, they would become homeowners, thus able to vote and use that ability to help end slavery. Only thing is, these free African Americans didn't have experience farming, let alone farming in northern New York. Around that same time, Another, more famous abolitionist, John Brown, enters the picture. He heard about what Garrett Smith was doing and figured he might be able to help the African Americans learn how to farm in the harsh Adirondacks. John Brown had grown up in the Northeast and had experience working on farms in the colder climate. So he reached out to Garrett Smith and bought one of those plots of land, thinking that he and his family could help the African Americans in this new environment. And when John Brown got there, he dubbed the new ambitious settlement Timbuktu. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we go to the town of North Elba, New York, to visit John Brown's farm, a monument to the famous abolitionists and the last vestige of Timbuktu. More after this. time I took a road trip. How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites— along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. To get to the John Brown Farm, you have to go through the Adirondack Park in northern New York State. When John Brown lived there, the farm was sitting on 200 acres. But today, the majority of that land now belongs to the park, with the museum being the barn and his old house. Um, which is a very simple, modest, two-story structure, wood stove on the lower level, mostly open space on the lower level. That is Cordell Reeves. He's the Community Affairs Coordinator for the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation. Basically, he's the curator of the experience at the John Brown Farm. 
and then a lofted bedrooms under the roof line upstairs. And there's the barn, which is mostly reconstructed, but looks from outside appearances like a barn and is used to house the Timbuktu exhibit on the main level and on the lower level, a small visitor center area that we use for programming. If you walk through the home, it feels just like the mid-1800s when John Brown was living there. Just the old wooden floors, brick fireplace, and furniture that looks like it could have been made by hand. It's not actually outfitted with John Brown's old furniture, though. These are all replicas. But either way, Cordell tells me that seeing actual furniture of John Brown isn't what brings people to the old home in North Elba. They're coming for the story. They're coming to it as a place of pilgrimage. They hear the story of his life. They walk the grounds. They, you know, they see the mountains in the background. And I think they have more of an internal than an external experience. And that internal experience is due to the fact that over time, folks have come to see John Brown as one of the most notable anti-slavery figures of his time. John Brown came from an anti-slavery family and was raised in the Northeast, mostly Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York. But Cordell tells me that John Brown's commitment to justice for African Americans was rooted in an experience he had out West. When he is 12, you know, he's on a cattle drive helping to drive cattle um, West for the army for the War of 1812. And he is stopping at a tavern overnight and he sees the tavern keeper mercilessly beat this enslaved boy who's about his own age, who he had somewhat befriended the way children do, where they encounter each other and just strike up a casual bond with one another. And seeing this beating of this child, that changes something in him. You know, he has an experience of complete empathy with this child. That leads John Brown to a life of both violent and nonviolent abolitionist work. He was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and was a friend of both Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. By the time he moved to North Elba in 1849, Brown was in his second marriage and had over a dozen children. He comes with a rather large family, you know, so he lives there with his children. He lives there with his wife. He lives there with the spouses of his children. And if you're imagining that large family on a farm with a ton of animals and a huge variety of crops, then John Brown's farm in North Elba would be somewhat of a letdown. He has cattle, very small amounts of cattle. That's mostly for dairy, you know, for dairy production. But they're growing a lot of hardier things that could survive in that climate. So they're growing potatoes, um, they're growing root vegetables, things of that sort. As far as the workings of the farm and how much, um, whether or not it was ever profitable, it's doubtful. Though John Brown had previous experience when it came to farming, his earlier farms weren't that successful. He was always more busy doing anti-slavery work than actually doing farm work. It turns out his farm in North Elba wouldn't be much different. He's probably only there for about six months total because he's just constantly pursuing the work and the work is anti-slavery and the work is you know ending and breaking the slave system so he's doing that in kansas nebraska territory he's 
going into Missouri and going on the plantations and walking off with, you know, 20 some odd people and escorting them to Canada. You know, he's he's doing this work all along. John Brown was gone doing anti-slavery work for the vast majority of the time his family lived in North Elba. While he was out, his family stayed back, and there really isn't any record of his family helping any African-American settlers. Seems like they were working hard just trying to get by on their own. In fact, one of the African-American settlers, Lyman Epps, helped the Brown family build the farmhouse. Lyman Epps' family was one of the few African-American families that made it to Timbuktu which never actually reached its full potential. Although the idea may have been revolutionary, it just wasn't practical. Even though the land was free, granted to them by Garrett Smith, many free blacks couldn't afford to move their entire families from their cities to northern New York. And when they got there, they needed more resources to cultivate the land. Census reports from 1850 to 1870 showed that only 13 black families lived in the area. By 1871, there were only two. Most of these settlers were not able to make a go of it, which is not surprising if, for anyone who's been in, in the Adirondacks in the winter, it's, um, it's a lot to have to manage, especially if you are someone who is unfamiliar with the harsh climate conditions, unfamiliar with farming, it is a lot to manage. John Brown's work ended almost 500 miles away from the farm. You know the story. In 1859, a decade after getting involved with Timbuktu, John Brown staged a famous raid at Harper's Ferry in West Virginia. John Brown planned to use the fort to help enslaved people travel north to freedom. But the plan failed pretty miserably. Federal forces, led by Colonel Robert E. Lee of all people, charged John Brown's group killing several and taking John Brown alive. John Brown was then sentenced to death, but in one of their last conversations, he told his wife he wanted to be buried back at the farm. And as the body passes through several cities, people gather. Um, sometimes pro and anti-slavery forces gather in certain cities and there's, you know, almost riots break out over this. You know, the body at, at points is under guard because they are afraid someone's going to try to desecrate it. So this is huge news. This is huge news, and it's huge news because it, it rattles the South so deeply. You know, Southern slave owners are rattled by this so deeply that, you know, this man has come into their territory and their own backyard and has, you know, almost pulled something off that would have been disastrous for them. John Brown's wife honored his request, and along with him, a few of the other men from Harper's Ferry are buried at the farm. It seems like though he wasn't there often, John Brown had a soft spot for his farm in North Elba and the settlement it was a part of. His family didn't actually stay in North Elba long, though, because after his wife returned with the body, folks just started popping up at their home, and they wanted to just get away from the whole thing. But his family does wind up moving to the West Coast. They just, you know, they need a new start. You know, they need some separation from this. The only family to permanently stay in Timbuktu was the family of Lyman Epps, the man who helped the Browns build their farmhouse. Today, if you visit John Brown's farm, you get both the story of John Brown and the little bit we know of the story of Timbuktu and its other settlers. And though, like John Brown's raid on Harpers Ferry, the settlement failed, 
It's the attempt at true liberty that folks admire 250 years later. If you want to visit John Brown's farm, it's in the Adirondack Park and open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. I want to thank Cordell Reeves for joining me for today's episode. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Manolo Morales, Gabby Gladney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tindall. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. My name is Baudelaire. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.